0: Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, the pod where we talk about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pritty from the University of Essex. Our two guests today are being recorded in sequence as we talk of the climate crisis. You'll hear first from Professor Lloyd Peck at the British Antarctic Survey, and then from the USA, from author, educator and activist Bill McKibben, founder of 350-350.org. So first, the science and the direct observations of the Antarctic, and then the implications for policy and agency. Um, these are recorded separately and presented here on the pod in sequence. Lloyd, welcome to the show. Uh, you're in Cambridge at the British Antarctic Survey, um, a research fellow of Wilson College, past presenter of the Royal Institution Christmas Lecture, And importantly for the show today, you've made 20 visits to the Antarctic over 30 years. So you will have seen tremendous change, not just in the science that you've been doing there, but also in your kind of observations of change over over a generation and more. So could you start by painting a picture for us? Tell us the contemporary story of the Antarctic.
1: So I usually go to Rothera Research Station and it's about two-thirds of the way down the Antarctic Peninsula. It's one of the most southerly stations on this side of the Antarctic. In the wintertime, the sea usually freezes and freezes solid, and it can freeze to thicknesses of a metre or so. In the summertime, it's open water, and we're working from small inflatable research boats. I'm a scuba diver. I've got over 800 scuba dives in the Antarctic. And um, things have changed substantially in the time that I've been going south. So there's a large glacier, the Sheldon Glacier, about six or seven kilometres from our station. And it is now two to three kilometres back from where it was when I first visited the station. So I can now go and sit in a boat where there were two 300 foot ice cliffs um when i started going in the 1990s to this station the winters are less hard so we were regularly going out on skidoos across the ice in uh, october november and december now that all stops september october time and some winters you don't get out on skidoos because the ice just isn't strong enough it's made a big difference to things like iceberg scouring so Icebergs only move around when there's no sea ice. And as glaciers go back, they carve more icebergs. So we've had periods where iceberg scouring has been more intense than it has in the past by large measure. So we now have the most physically disturbed seabed on the planet near our station because we're getting iceberg impacts twice, three times a year in shallow waters at five meters, 10 meters depth.
0: And that iceberg impact is literally, as, as, as it carves off, it's just causing enormous disturbance of, of the sea and the seabed and disrupting ecosystems there.
1: It's floating ice. And it's that floating ice that when it hits the seabed, it just removes the life on the seabed. And it varies in, in two ways. In the size of the piece of ice. So, even a piece of ice the size of a shoebox, and there are billions, if not trillions of those floating around in the Antarctic. If they bounce up and down on a small sea squirt, they'll kill the small sea squirt. And then you go through the whole gamut of size through transit van size, which is pretty common when you're scuba diving there, through to small houses, blocks of flats. And then the biggest icebergs, which are the size of English counties, they are uh, maybe 300. Um, feet high at the surface, so another six, seven hundred, eight hundred feet down, they are billions of tons, many, many billions of tons. And if you think about an object that size, um, moving it in a in an ocean current, even at half a mile an hour, the force when it hits the seabed is the equivalent of of very large bombs that we would be dropping um, during our wars. So the, the destruction is is absolutely massive just from physical disturbance. And we've seen that change while we've been at Rothera. So when I first went, there were dense algae and animal communities at uh, between about 8 metres depth and 15 metres depth. They've gone. The icebergs have removed them.
0: So when you when you started going in the 1990s, we weren't far away from 350 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, that was 1990. That was a kind of safe space for humanity. So I guess going to the Antarctic soon after that point was was to be thinking, well, our predictions are not that great, um, but it could get a bit scary. And then in a generation, tremendous change in the form that you've been describing. Do you think at that time anybody had a sense of the pace of change that might roll out, or were they just kind of, scenarios that we really hoped wouldn't come about?
1: So I don't know if you've looked at my Christmas lectures from 2004, but we specifically had one of those lectures on climate change. And we were talking about how rapidly it's changing. I interviewed a guy, a very, very uh, impressive scientist, Jim Lovelock, for that programme. And he showed me... Um, articles he published in the early 1990s, saying pretty similar to what we've seen now, but also saying all our models all the way through the 1990s, the 1980s, have predicted less warming and less climate change than we had on all of those. So he said models are now predicting that we're going to have a warming of one to two degrees in the next 50 to 100 years. It's got to be a lot more than that, because the models always underpredict because we are conservative with our modelling. And I think that applies now, where we were saying we have to keep under one and a half degrees. There's no way we're keeping under one and a half degrees. We're probably not keeping under two and a half degrees. And if we think about how that affects not just the average temperature on the planet, but the variation, the intensity of the storms that we're going to have, and the intensity of droughts is going to be way higher than it is now. And that has massive consequences. For human civilizations. And I sometimes say in the talks that I give now to to, um, schools and public bodies and, and outlets like this if we as individuals go flying four, five, six times a year on holidays and continue to drive vehicles that produce lots of carbon dioxide and we don't control what we eat and we have new mobile phones every year and we change our clothes with fashion regularly we as individuals are probably killing somebody in the next 50 to 100 years because hundreds of millions if not billions of people will die from climate change and we are doing that now
0: and that's what the science is telling us um particularly let's kind of circle back a little bit to um how how you and colleagues who are working in the antarctic you've sailed across the equator again for another another trip and you're arriving and each time things are looking different uh, perhaps you could just take us and the listeners under the surface of the water when you're scuba diving and tell us a bit about the specific research that you've done on on uh, communities underwater under the ice on the seabed and tell us a little bit about that
1: so uh, as a little bit of preamble and um, the environment under the sea in the Antarctic is different from anywhere else. It's the only place that I have seen with the naked eye phytoplankton because the phytoplankton are bigger and they form strings. And if you lie on your back at shallow depths in the Antarctic, when the diatom bloom is on and look at the sun, you can see green hairs in the sea. And those are phytoplankton. And you don't see phytoplankton like that almost anywhere else on Earth. Diving with ice that has been deep in glaciers proper blue ice so that the pressure in the glacier has squeezed the ice crystals together and and fuses it means that you can't see the ice underwater so you can put your hand out and you can touch it but you don't see the ice for another half a meter maybe into the iceberg you can blow bubbles and you can see them going up the side of the ice but it's just like the water has been vitrified so there are some really phenomenal environmental consequences that you can see as a scuba diver we also have um a resident killer whale pod so when the killer whale pod comes around we don't dive Um, we have lots of leopard seals when the leopard seals are around we don't dive Um, the second most numerous large mammal on the planet is almost certainly a crab eater seal there are somewhere between eight and 15 million of them in the antarctic And we see them regularly. Uh, The life is different. We have um, about 24, 25% of the world's sea spider species in the Antarctic. And that's on around about 10 or 11% of the world's continental shelf. They are two to two and a half times more diverse than sea spiders anywhere else. We have 20,000 species of marine invertebrates living on the seabed. It's not that different from Europe. So, the idea that that things don't live in the polar regions is just wrong,
0: yeah, I think people have a a general impression or do they i mean is this i i'm I'm sort of guessing this because perhaps I know too much and but I think people have an impression that that polar regions are deserts, and there's not really that much going on in terms of life there's ice there's water um there is you know storms and and, and sky, and that's about it, and a few penguins in the south and polar bears in the north. But you're describing a unique ecosystems, highly diverse, and therefore under threat in a similar way to ecosystems in every other place in the planet, but, but of significant consequence because of the pace of change in the polar regions.
1: And, and possibly more at threat than elsewhere. So um, as scientists... We've only really looked in detail at a handful of species, maybe 20. But uh, but things that we can conclude from our work is they don't respond to warming very well at all. And that's probably because the temperature environment in the sea in Antarctica is very constant. And animals don't live uh, in a fluctuating temperature system like they do in in Europe and the temperate regions. And in some areas of Antarctica, the annual variation in temperature is less than a degree. And it's been like that for millions of years. In most parts of the Antarctic, the annual temperature variation is around about two to three degrees. And again, it's been like that for millions of years. Around at the UK coast, it's 10 to 15 degrees. And most temperate regions, it's like that. And we think that's normal. But by far the biggest Habitable environment on the planet is low temperature and it's low variability because all of the deep sea is low temperature and low variability. So 70 to 80% of the world's habitable volume is low temperature and low variation. And a very, very large number of species live in the deep sea, like the Antarctic. So we know that our Antarctic animals die when you warm them up to three, four degrees, five degrees in the short term we know if you keep temperatures above about 2 in the long term several species can't cope and that's above a minimum of minus 2 where seawater freezes so that's very temperature sensitive so we've got a very narrow band there for for life yeah and it's it's similar, it's similar in the tropics where the temperature variation is small but it's a lot higher elsewhere so we have these 20,000 species including some of the what i would argue as the most biologically unique species on earth. And we all worry about elephants and lions and tigers, but there are lots of species that are like elephants and lions and tigers, at least biologically. We have 16 species of fish in the Antarctic, the Chinichthyde ice fish, and they don't have red blood cells. They are the only animals with backbones, all the reptiles, all the amphibians, all the fish, all the birds, all the mammals, they all have red blood cells except these 16 species, and they live on the 2 to 3% of oxygen just dissolved in the blood circulating around the body. So we have 97% more oxygen in red blood cells than they have. They can only live like that because it's cold, and they're cold-blooded animals, which means the low temperature makes their metabolic rates very low because all the chemical reactions in their cells go very, very slowly.
0: They're very slowly. Everything's slow for them, yeah.
1: Everything's very slow for them. And in fact, if you keep them in an aquarium, you can't get them to feed unless you put the food right in front of their mouths within about a centimeter of where they're sitting, because they won't chase food. We know they reproduce, but we don't have any idea how they do that.
0: No clue. Slowly.
1: No clue. <laughs> right. No clue. We know they it takes very, very long times for their eggs to develop because it's slow. But these fish can only survive because it's cold and there's very little variation. They die when you warm them up only a little bit. And they are different biologically from all other animals with backbones on the planet.
0: How, how long do they live for? Um, are
1: they are they long living? Do we know that? Yeah, we know they live for at least fifty years. Yeah, maybe much longer. Um, we know there are consequences for not having red blood cells, and we think we might know why they don't have red blood cells. So, um, the every backboned animal on the planet has the same size capillaries at the end of their. Circulatory system within about 20 or 30 percent, 1.2 to 1.3 times the smallest. These fish have three to 400 percent larger capillaries than any other animal with a backbone. They're massive. Their hearts are five times bigger than hearts of similar fish, similar sized fish in the temperate regions. Now, we know as temperatures go down to around about zero, the stickiness of water gets much higher, the viscosity goes up. And that's a factor in getting heart attacks. So the evolutionary positive for not having red blood cells is you don't have these big lumps floating around in your your circulatory systems in a stickier environment that is likely to give you a heart attack. So it could well be, and it seems that we think it is likely, that they've lost red blood cells to reduce the problems of the high viscosity at low temperatures.
0: Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah. And that's only allowed in a very, very specific environment,
0: yeah, and that's only one type of animal, these sixteen species of of this particular fish that you're talking about in in the Antarctic that's under threat in in the broadest sense i mean how this what strikes me is um how do we talk then? In kind of positive terms about the climate crisis that faces us. I mean, it, it, I give a lot of talks, as as, as I know you do, um, uh, and people don't really want to hear about bad stuff. I think they kind of know, they don't know the detail, but there's so much now that is attributed actually to the climate crisis, whether it's wildfires or storms or 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 melting of of, of uh, mountain glaciers and so forth. Um, but examples of Picking on on the extraordinary diversity of systems, which are under threat, as you've just been saying, and and showing that there would be medical um, opportunities for understanding them better and understanding their processes better is a is a form of storytelling that helps people understand other reasons for saving biodiversity, for redressing the kind of problems that we've been creating with the climate crisis. Um, in other words, trying to kind of turn it into a different form of language. I mean, is, is, what what do you find when you're talking about this sort of thing and the problems that you mentioned earlier on? People want to hear that that, yes, we could do something about this? I know politically we have a different story to tell, um, but in terms of the reasons why humanity should be concerned and should be doing something about it, uh, partly not just to protect against problems, but to provide kind of new opportunities, new hope, new understanding and so forth.
1: So first I'd like to take issue with one of the statements you made, that we're all okay on accepting that climate change is happening. Only last week we had some workmen come in to work in my office in Cambridge and there were three of them in the room. And one of them said to me, well, is this climate change thing real? You're a scientist working on on the Antarctic. You work on climate change because people have said. And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, is it real? And one of the other people out of the three said, yeah, I'm not sure about that either. Uh So I think. climate change denying organizations are doing a terrific job in muddying the waters and making people unsure about whether climate change is really happening or whether it's just a natural cycle which i as a scientist looking at the data cannot believe that anybody would try to support the idea that it's a natural cycle because if you look at all the natural cycles on the planet nothing changes as fast as it's changing now anywhere near by orders of magnitude it's all way slower so the idea it's a natural cycle is is for me patently ridiculous but clearly not for the the person on the clapham omnibus whether she reads the right sorts of material or the wrong sorts of material or listens to podcasts or not a large proportion of our population still don't know whether climate change is real or not. So I think that's a problem first up, that the message is being ignored by a lot. Yes, because they don't want to change. It really isn't sure for certain in a lot of people's minds. So coming back to the Antarctic, a lot of the medical products we use now come from natural sources, from biodiversity. We would argue that, that one of the biggest untapped sources for biodiversity is in those 20,000 species in the Antarctic um my group as a phd student looking for antimicrobials in antarctic species we think there might be one or two and yet we're only scratching the surface of of what that biodiversity has to offer and there's a reasonable chance a significant proportion of that won't be here in 50 years time and we won't have the opportunity to exploit it to provide new antibiotics low temperature solutions for for enzymes for washing powders, low temperature solutions for lubricants, antifreezes from natural sources that already are used to make frost-free tomatoes so that tomatoes can grow for longer periods and we can have more product, or uh, antifreeze that's put into ice cream to make it smoother so that people like their ice cream. There are are lots of low temperature products from biodiversity already, but we're still scratching the surface. Handfuls of species have, have been looked at. So there's a lot of potential for us to use those products. Big proportion of society are banking on technological solutions. They've got to make those work really fast. And I would argue we have to pull our horns in at least a fair bit. So, yeah, I cycle everywhere. I don't have a car. I don't change my mobile phone until Apple force me to because it won't work anymore I say to myself, I am not going to get rid of any piece of clothing unless I've worn it 50 times, and for most pieces of clothing, for more than 200 times. And I I try to make my imprint on the earth as small as possible because I know about climate change. I see the data and I feel beholden to take action as much as I can. I talk to lots of outlets and try to sell the same message. I talked to Harrow School last year gave that message at
0: Harrow School. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's absolutely the right thing to do, to be um, living in the way that shows um, a form of of kind of integrity and moral position that supports what the findings are that we're seeing around the world. Um, as you described, the, the, the pace of change in the polar regions and the Antarctic in, in particular, as you've been talking about, that change is faster than the, change, than the rate of discovery. I mean, the, what's required to find out all about several thousand species is, is, is probably hundreds of years of work, isn't it? Um, uh, and the fear is that important things will be going as the pace of change proceeds. So it strikes me that we've got two different routes here. One is policy and action and talk and encouragement in order to change towards zero emissions very quickly, as soon as we possibly can, and at the same time continuing fast pace of, of discovery um, in order to make those discoveries, but also to have stories to tell about what it is that we are going to be missing if we carry on in the way that we're doing. I mean, is that kind of the way you see it? Yeah,
1: yeah I absolutely agree. I think, I think if you know something and you care, and you either care for humanity or you care... The environment, you really have to do something. It's almost like saying we know that if you sit out in the sun, you're going to get sunburn and it might lead to cancers. And hey, I have a massive stock of sun cream, but I'm not going to give it to anybody because I just don't care. You would automatically take actions like that. The fact that I know means I I feel I have to take actions like that. A really scary thing that's happening now is we have way the lowest winter sea ice extent around the Antarctic than we have on record. And five of the lowest six years have been in the last eight years. And it looks to me like we're entering a phase where Antarctic sea ice is going to do what the Arctic has been doing for the last 25 or 30 years and we are going to lose we are going to lose millions of square kilometers of sea ice and that's one of the big reflectors of light off the planet. And that is going to increase the rate of warming. And there's nothing we can do about that because the warming is already in the system and it takes 20 to 30 years to equilibrate. So that extra warming is going to go on top from extra sunlight coming into sea instead of bouncing off off ice. That extra warming is going to come in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We can do nothing about that.
0: So we are thinking about actions now for protecting us and the planet in the further distance. But tell us a bit about your, your, your neck. When are you next going to the Antarctic? It, it, it struck me. I, I, I worked with, uh, um, a group of former Shetland whalers for, for, a, of quite a while understanding their lives as whalers back in the fifties and sixties. so a uh, number are still alive, um, uh, and they used to talk about the gift of light, that they would travel down to the Antarctic in the... Um, of course, they were going from South Georgia, so it wasn't as far as you've been talking about, but it's it's the kind of southern seas. Um, and they would be there um, in the Antarctic summer when it was almost all light, and then come back to Shetland in our summer, the Northern Hemisphere summer, when it was almost all light. So people would would find themselves for a number of years almost living in permanent daylight. And they talked of that as a thing, you know, as kind of a way that they saw the world differently. Of course, if you did it the other way around, you would be in dark all the time. Um, and you've talked about being in the Antarctic winter. When, when are you next going and uh, what are you hoping to do?
1: I, I go in January. I'm going for two, two and a half months. And there's a plan to extend the runway um there's a plan to extend the runway on the station where I go. And um, uh, we're doing the biodiversity survey for the environmental impact assessment. I, I do have some of, of our own uh, research running as well, which hopefully uh, we'll be able to find some time to do. Uh, recent pieces of work we've done we built a system for heating up the seabed. We built panels that you could warm up by basically whatever you wanted up to about five degrees and we've warmed it to what we think the temperatures are going to be in the next 50 or 100 years, one degree above and two degrees above. And a one degree warming doubled the growth rates of the animals on our panels, which we found astonishing because a warming of one degree should only increase biological rates by about 15%, not 100%. So we still don't understand why fully why that warming had that effect maybe it's something to do with increasing the period when they can feed improving the rate at which they digest food and maybe they could get instead of three four five meals a year maybe they could get six seven eight meals a year maybe that's part of of the answer and but at two degrees none of them were surviving long term So two degrees of warming in the summertime, we did their gene expressions. They were all expressing stress proteins and stress genes at very high levels, clearly not surviving long term in those conditions. So they're very, very temperature sensitive. And that's the type of research we're doing. We're trying to find what what people might think of as tipping points and the tipping points in our environment look to be in the region of one to two degrees of warming in the Antarctic. And that is predicted to happen in the next 30 to 50 years. And when that happens, ecosystems are likely to change whole scale. And maybe people don't care like I do about giant sea spiders that are 50 centimetres across or 60 centimetres across because, well, a lot of people don't like spider formed animals and sea spiders are a long way away. Maybe they don't care about the clams and the mussels or the equivalents of mussels and the snails. And the giant predatory worms and the giant jellyfish but i think they might care about the whales and the penguins and the seals and that whole ecosystem has tipping points that are likely to be hit when we get a one to two degrees of warming we already see shifts in many of the pelagic species krill populations are shifting their distributions are shifting and that's almost certainly in relation to the warming and the climate change and that means that the animals that feed on krill, those, those big whales, the great whales and the animals that feed on them, the killer whales, the penguins that feed on krill, the seals that feed on krill, all those fish that depend on krill, they're going to have to move too. And as they move further towards the south, the area where they can live gets smaller because the area of the planet, as you go further away from the tropics, gets smaller. So that means less food. It means more concentrated into smaller areas it means several things are going to really struggle or fail.
0: Well, Lloyd, thank you very much indeed for coming on. Um, I don't think I can even ask you for a recommendation or two. We usually finish the pods for you know, a recommendation. It's going to be changing our consumption patterns. It's going to be policy action. Uh, we're going to be hearing from Bill McKibben shortly about um, the sorts of things that he's trying to help happen in the US. Uh, but thank you very much indeed for painting a vivid and fantastic picture of antarctic ecosystems under threat under pressure with these dramatically sharp um, tipping points as you've described them where systems can go from one place to another one super fast even though they live very slowly many of the animals so lloyd thank you very much indeed
1: you're very welcome and my parting shot is do something to help anything will help and thank you for asking me to come on the program
0: Wonderful. Thanks very much indeed, Lloyd. Thanks a lot. Bill McKibben, warm welcome to the show. Uh, Bill, you're speaking from probably the hills of New York State, um, founder of 350.org, author of a dozen books beginning with uh, the famed and haunting end of nature at end of the 1980s, wasn't it? Indeed it was, a long time ago. Indeed, yes. And um, uh, the Boston Globe and Time magazine called you, you are United States' leading environmentalist and the world's best green journalist. I'm sure your ears and cheeks are burning as a result of that, but very well deserved. Phil, it's a pleasure to have you on. 30-plus um, years of writing and activism, over which time the climate crisis just got worse and worse. Uh, so tell us a bit about... 350.org, what, what that was all about and what are you doing today um, in terms of organising and helping and policy activism to deal with this really tricky problem that we all face?
2: Absolutely, Jules, and what a pleasure to be with you and so many thanks for your good work. Um, I did write the first book about all this back in the 1980s and the tragedy, of course, of our current moment is we knew everything back then that we know now. Um, which essentially is that if you burn fossil fuel, you put carbon in the atmosphere and it traps heat that would otherwise radiate back out to space. It was pretty clear then that we had to stop burning fossil fuel, but we didn't. We've put more carbon into the atmosphere since 1989 than in all the years before. And more than anything else, that's the result of the extraordinary power of the fossil fuel industry. At the time, the biggest industry on Earth, still its second or third biggest industry, and the enormous political power that was enough to block serious change. So that's why, after a while, uh, a few of us decided that we were going to have to build some kind of commensurate power to try and check uh, the strength of the fossil fuel industry. Lacking billions of dollars, you know, organizing people was the only other alternative. So we set out to do 350.org, which took its strange name from what the science tells us: the much carbon we could safely have in atmosphere, of 350 parts per million. It was the first global grassroots climate campaign. It's still ticking strong. We've organized about 20,000 demonstrations in every country on earth, except North Korea. Uh, And there's a big uh, day of action at the end of November that uh, uh, 350.org is working on right now. I'm spending most of my time, along with writing, um, now organizing Uh, old people like me. We've set up a new thing in the States called Third Act that organizes people over the age of 60 for action on climate and democracy. And we've been very uh, successful in the first couple of years in mobilizing tens of thousands of really remarkable volunteers who have been doing what they can. And what they can is a lot because (laughs) though, as you've just been hearing from the Antarctic, we're in a uh, world of hurt um, and we're not going to get out of that. We can't stop global warming now. We're also in the world of actual opportunity. Uh, in the last decade, scientists have dropped the price of renewable energy so fast and so far that we now live on an earth where the cheapest way to produce power is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. And that really should allow us to make rapid, rapid progress. Uh, but again, only if we can break the enormous political power of the fossil fuel industry. So that's where we're still at and still uh, uh, fighting an endless series of important battles.
0: This the remarkable citizen engagement that you've described there for both 350.org and and third act, and speaking as somebody in the over sixties um uh with hopefully many years ahead, I think it's very interesting that you've focused upon what um people who are often considered to be at the end of life, whereas actually these days an awful lot of life lies ahead um who often have resource but they certainly have time um and that kind of gives a does that open up a new kind of space for citizen? engagement when we're thinking about about what's needed to to offset see off let me put it in a different way um the huge forces that exist for continuing with fossil fuels even though the prices of renewables are coming down fast and many countries are making quite remarkable progress many not of course but many are um, uh, that's so tell us a bit more about that engagement yeah sure um Yes, I think
2: organizing older people is a really, really important thing. Young people have been providing most of the leadership on climate, let it be said. Um, everybody knows the name of Greta Thunberg, and they should. She's one of my favorite people to work with. But she'd be the first to say there are 10,000 Gretas around the planet, young people who are doing great work. Um, And they have 10 million followers. That's how many people were out on school strike in September of 2019 before the pandemic hit. Um, But I've heard one too many people say to me, oh, it's up to the next generation to solve this problem, um, which seems ignoble because they didn't cause it, but also impractical because for all their energy, intelligence, and idealism, young people lack the structural power to by themselves make change on the scale we need in the time that we have. Remember, this is a timed test and there isn't uh, margin for young people to grow up and assume control of our political bodies and our corporations and so on and so forth. For the moment, they're gonna need the structural power that adheres to those of us of a certain age uh, in the states for instance there's 70 million people over the age of 60. um that's a lot of people and our political power is greater than that because we all vote there's no known way to stop old people from voting you know and um we ended up as you said with most of the financial resources too so if you wanted to take on in our case wall street and washington Uh, It would help to have some people with hairlines like mine. Now, the um, political scientists have always insisted that people become more conservative as they age, which may have been true at some point. Um, But for this generation, I think it's at least a debatable prospect, because if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s now, your first act was during that period of remarkable social, cultural, political transformation in the 1960s and 1970s, the period when we started taking women seriously in public life, the apex of the civil rights movement in America. The first Earth Day in America in the 1970s, 1970, when we had 20 million people in the street, about 10% of the then population. And these people are older, but they're those moments and those possibilities and maybe particularly struck by the fact that the world turned out that we hoped i mean uh in america uh we did after the in short order get past the clean air act and the clean water act and what do you know our water would clean up but it didn't occur to us then that we were going to melt the poles You know, we lived through Watergate, and so we knew that uh, democracy was always a threat to corruption, but the system kind of worked then. We we didn't anticipate that we'd end up with, you know, thousands of our countrymen storming the nation's capital to stop the counting of votes. So there's a great deal of um, apprehension about the world that we're in now for older people, but also a great reservoir of... Uh, kind of history and understanding that it doesn't need to be this way and an extraordinary willingness to work uh to do all the kind of tasks of phone calling and lobbying and things but also sometimes to go to the streets we did a big day of action in march against the four big banks in america chase city wells fargo bank of america that are the four biggest lenders on earth to the fossil fuel industry. And we had, in a hundred cities, I was at the one in Washington where we shut down the banks for the day with civil disobedience. Uh, We've reached an age when sprawling on the concrete for four or five hours is less fun than it might once have been. So instead, we rounded up hundreds of rocking chairs from around the Washington Brilliant. area and <laughs> shut down the banks with those. The <laughs> New York Times the next day called it a rocking chair rebellion.
0: Yes, exactly.
2: So people are standing up in all kinds of ways.
0: Lovely. Isn't that nice? And and I think there's something I... I when, when I talk to people, and particularly to young people, they do feel anxious about um, the weight being put onto them. I do say to them... It's not your job to save the planet because so many people use that phrase in a sort of casual way. No single person can do this, um, and and they do look to older generations and think, well, of course, as you said, of course, we, you know, it's not us who caused the problem. It's you. So where's the agency and responsibility coming from that side? And I I do think that this third act is a, a kind of brilliant way of mobilising. Large numbers of people to create new new stories. I mean, the rocking chair thing is a new story, isn't it? It's a way of kind of getting agency into the into the public at large, which strikes me as a beautiful thing. I mean, I do say I think the latest figures in the UK. I imagine they're pretty similar in the US. Um, is that fifty percent of 18 year olds the students who are coming the young people who are coming into colleges like our one 50 percent of them are going to live to 100 so they've got old age quite a long way ahead of them but when they get to it it's going to go on for a long time yep we hope um and so this kind of agency strikes me (laughs) as being a kind of rather beautiful thing um yeah so
2: yes let's hope you know i mean i think none of that's to be taken for none of that's to be taken for granted yeah. in in this country um life expectancy has actually begun to drop
0: it's been falling and hasn't it yes
2: it's yeah. you know a scary sign of how our our country has begun to erode and so we have an enormous amount of work to do uh but older people can definitely help in that work and we find that the most pleasure comes from working pretty directly with younger people um which which is actually easier than you would expect. It turns out that the kind of working relationship between people who are the age of grandparents and grandchildren is far easier than parents and children. Yes. Well, isn't that interesting? You I
0: know? mean, it also strikes me if you, uh, I've worked a lot and I know you have with, with indigenous groups, um, uh, which is a kind of, Echo of of human history as well as kind of great diversity today. The elders in our tribes were the people who um, had great wisdom because they'd seen changes yep. over time, and they were often yep. and are often the guides for young people. You jump a generation yep. to the elders, so you you've got this elders movement emerging, which again is kind yep. of interesting, isn't it?
2: No, it's it really is, and and really really fun, um, and. People are starting to spread the idea around to other corners of the world, which makes me happy. Um, um, We shall see, you know, I'm, Mm. (laughs) I think it's.
0: There's a lot to do, isn't there? Yes.
2: There there is. And I'm not at all convinced that we're going to make it out the other side of this Mm. Jules, The, uh, Mm. you know, I mean, I think you can, you can make an argument for uh, what we're doing uh, being, enough to stabilize things and i think you can also foresee scenarios where the kind of uh uh, societal decay and even collapse that seems kind of represented by people like donald trump continues to grow and spread so it's a very very tenuous time as we you know erode the physical underpinnings of the planet to see how we can hold the planet and its societies together on that. And we need as much wisdom as we can bring to bear. Uh,
0: speaking of which, let's come to your brilliant books then. So you you started with The End of Nature um, a, in, in 1989, as you said, when, uh, as we were talking about, um, uh, when we were living in a safe place when it came to the climate crisis. Um, uh, and I remember being touched by the passage about the quiet lake and then the speedboats appearing with the motors um, and then the issue yeah. being that they invade the mind as well as the real space long after they've gone. In other words, they create this kind of distant anxiety and pressure that they're about to reappear, which strikes me as being a kind of motif for the environmental concerns that, that we face. Then recently, falter, which is about kindness and generosity. And now, um, you're, would it be fair to call the flag, the cross and the station wagon the a kind of memoir, really. Um, uh, you you make this point: a graying American, as we've been talking about, uh, looks back and wonders what the hell happened. Oh, it's a brilliant title. So I kind of said, "What what the hell did happen?" Yeah. Um, and- yes, it's as close to a memoir as
2: it's as close as a memoir that I'll write. It's not really much of a memoir, but it does. It's about a sort of decade, the nineteen seventies, uh, when I was coming of age, and I was coming of age in the american suburb which turned out to be probably the most important uh, settlement pattern in human history because it uh more than anything else was the thing that propelled uh the climate crisis um but it was also the thing that propelled the sort of dominant uh uh, idea of consumerism um you know around the world so it's a very interesting moment to try and understand and that's what i was trying to do i think at the most basic level what happened in the 1970s in america was the transition from the idea of our society as a group project you know dating back at least to fdr and the new deal and coming through uh lbj and the great society and the war on poverty and things the transition from that to the world we've inhabited for the last four or five decades the one that was exemplified when ronald reagan won the white house in 1980 on the slogan government is the problem not the solution i.e all of us working together is the thing to avoid and (laughs) And the
0: rise of selfishness that comes on the back of that
2: Exactly right. Yeah. And I think we still I mean, you know, on your side of the pond, it was Reagan's great pal, Maggie Thatcher, who said there is no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women. Um, and I, I, you know, I, that strikes me as the the absolute um, strikes me as. Absolutely wrong, and absolutely wrong in particularly the way that's produced the set of crises we now inherit. And so I wanted to understand where that came from as
0: best I could. Mm, Beautifully done. Um, I asked Lloyd Peck, who was in the first half of the show, about how we talk about the climate crisis. I mean, what kind of language should we use? Should we be seeking to minimise stress and anxiety of we want to create agency as you've talked about if we talk about actually how bad it can be and certainly Lloyd was talking about that with respect to the Antarctic uh, maybe that takes away some agency um because people lose hope so this question of hope I'm very interested in hope um which is not to diminish the actual problems that are happening but to give a kind of a path out of the dark forest and to say there are paths. They can be made. This is how we go about doing it. What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts about hope? Are there, are there dangers of using that kind of language, or is that exactly the kind of thing that people would like to hear um, to help them in this? Uh, these examples of citizen engagement and, and agency that you were describing?
2: Well, uh, you know, I, I have over the years just erred on the side of honesty, um, which I think people deserve and actually can engage with. And the honesty is not always, certainly not unremittingly hopeful Mm. in this case, but I think that probably more than hope, what people need are actual avenues for um, engagement. You know, our our default, especially at this point in our history, maybe because of that Reagan-Thatcher thing is to look for individual ways out to start thinking about what my house should be like or what car i should drive or something which is helpful in a small way but we're really past the point as the melting of the antarctic exemplifies where we're going to solve this problem one tesla at a time you know and and the most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual is come together with others in movements large enough to change the basic social and economic and political ground rules. That's why we formed things like 350.org or third act or whatever it is. And um, I, so I, I think people find hope or at least some relief from anxiety and despair only when they're actually engaged in trying to do something meaningful about it all. And at least that's been the case for me.
0: Yes. I mean, it's that I, it's from I to we, isn't it? It's from selfishness to cooperation to collaboration. The thing that humans have done pretty well for 100,000 years is the collaboration, what we might call the social capital, but the trust and reciprocity and common action. Those are the things that become the bedrock of the the change, which gives people a, a chance to Think about the world in a different way at the at the very least, but hopefully create a better one um, could you could could we finish just by asking for a couple of recommendations Bill I know it's a huge territory but but um, they could be um, small things like do something or they could be something big about policy what What would you like to say in terms of a couple of concluding thoughts?
2: well the main policy drivers at this point, the things big enough to matter are, one, stop the expansion of any new fossil fuel infrastructure. No new pipelines, no new oil fields, none of that. I mean, the math, as scientists have now been saying for a decade, no longer allows that. We're in a huge, huge fix, and it has to happen very fast now in the real world since we use and need a lot of energy the only way to allow that to happen is also to rapidly 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 develop renewable energy and the things that we have right now on the shelf in the relevant time frame affordable to use are solar panels wind turbines and the batteries to store that power when the wind drops or the sun goes down Um, we have to take absolute full advantage of the fact that the good lord hung a large ball of burning gas 93 million miles up in the sky and we now have the wit to make full use of it and you know if we do then there are paths that don't stop global warming but may stop it short of the point where it cuts civilization off at the knees but it has to happen right now the planet is outside its comfort zone so we need to be outside ours in moving to make change
0: very nicely put the 2020s are the key decade aren't they
2: this is it man um i do write a, a newsletter called the crucial years on substack and i think these are the crucial years i don't think we're going to get another bite at this out
0: yeah absolutely well thank you so much uh, bill mckibben of third act and Uh, founder of 350.org thank you so much for coming on it's been a real pleasure to hear from you Um, and uh, thank you and good luck
2: thank you so much for all your good writing and good work over the years which has meant so much to me
0: thank you take care friend lovely thanks very much indeed speak soon cheerio that was louder than words if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.